One of the aspects of this practice that we're doing here on Retreat Together is really how simple the instructions are for what to engage in. Have you noticed that it's just, it, it comes down to noticing, noticing what's going on moment after moment. And I find it so powerful. And also what amazes me is how my mind is so great at complicating the whole thing. You ever notice that? It's like amazing, the simple thing and the complications my mind can bring to this practice. It is uh, wondrous and amazing. (laughs) I don't know if you can relate to this or not. And tonight what I'd like to share with you is one way that I've found to frame my practice, which is going to fold into some very classical teachings that you find in kind of in Theravada Buddhism, but then flowers in, later on in, in Mahayana Buddhism. And it's a, a frame that I found so helpful at times to, to ease the tangling my mind is so good at doing around this, this path and this practice. And it's to hold Dharma practice, what we're doing here, as simply an act of generosity. That when I'm on retreat, my Dharma practice, it's an offering. It's this small, beautiful gift I offer to myself and to others, and you could say to the whole world on a a daily basis here on retreat. It's like, here I am on retreat, and throughout the day, I'm planting these, these really these tiny seeds of mindfulness, a seed of equanimity here, and then kindness, compassion. Just moments, just tiny seeds as an offering. Whereas the, the Buddha puts it in the Dhammapada, Drop by drop is the water pot filled. I'm just offering drops. There's one and there's another. Oh, and then, and then they, they fill the pot. And I find when I can feel that, to really sense that, it, it, it expands this path in practice. It, it feels like it opens up this doorway for me to touch the vastness of the Dharma. And with these reflections tonight, what, what I'm mostly wanting to offer to you is more of a feeling sense that you might allow your heart to reside in while practicing rather than something to think about or figure out, but more a feeling tone, a felt sense that you might find helpful, like I found helpful, especially for those minds like mine that can tangle and complicate things so skillfully. So more of the feeling sense. And when I share this with you, this is just one way to frame your time here. There are, there are multiple ways 
And I, I say this with a lot of what I teach. Please don't universalize it, which means uh, not to take this notion as the one and only way to situate your practice. And, and Rebecca alluded to this last night. I, I loved how she framed the role of Dharma talks. Like This is just an offering tonight, and then, then you get a sense if it fits or not. We find the Buddha pointing to this expansion of our sense of Dharma practice, of, of beginning to touch it in a way that I, we can feel the vastness of what we're doing here. He says, here, practitioner, a wise person of great wisdom does not intend for their own affliction or the affliction of others or for the affliction of both. Rather, when a wise person intends, they intend for their own welfare, the welfare of others, the welfare of both, and the welfare of the whole world. It is in this way that one is a wise person of great wisdom. This act of generosity, giving, giving the gift of this practice for my own welfare, for my own well-being, which ends up being a small gift I'm giving to others for their own welfare, their own well-being, and that I give to the world for the well-being of the world. This notion of Dharma practice as an act, an offering, I'm giving. And I want to share with you a poem that uh, offers a feeling sense of of giving a gift, what's involved in it, the the, the, the heart qualities. It's a a poem by really such a fine poet, uh, Li Young Li, entitled The Gift. Really, it's it's about this one act of a father pulling the splinter out of the hand of a son. He's the son in this poem. So the poem begins. To pull the metal splinter from my palm, my father recited a story in a low voice. I watched his lovely face and not the blade. Before the story ended, he had removed the iron sliver I thought I'd die from. I can't remember the tale, but hear his voice still. A well of dark water, a prayer. And I recall his hands, two measures of tenderness he laid against my face, the flames of discipline he raised above my head. Had you entered that afternoon, you would have thought you saw a man planting something in a boy's palm, a silver tear, a tiny flame. Had you followed that boy, you would have arrived here, where I bend over 
my wife's right hand. Look how I shave her thumbnail down so carefully she feels no pain. Watch as I lift the splinter out. I was seven when my father took my hand like this. And I did not hold that shard between my fingers and think, metal that will bury me, christen it like little assassin. I did not lift up my wound and cry, death visited here. I did what a child does when he's giving, given something to keep. I kissed my father. True, isn't it? Sometimes these small things in the world, like taking out a sliver of metal with such love, such tenderness, with such compassion, it makes all the difference in the world. And I want to venture to say that you have this opportunity to offer such small gifts to the world that can make all the difference. Planting, planting those seeds of kindness or mindfulness, the seed of joy or tranquility or patience, even seeds of wisdom. Day after day here on retreat, moment after moment. And for me, I think these small, almost imperceivable gifts are so important for our world. And can you feel the heartfelt beauty of offering a gift in this poem? Do you hear that? And how it extends beyond just one life into the lives of others? The son, the, the father takes out that sliver of metal from his son's hand. And then years later, the son takes out that splinter from his wife's hands with such tenderness. And how the poem ends. It's clear it's not some triumph over death, but rather that gesture of tender love. As the poet says, I I did what a child does when he's given something to keep. I kissed my father. And and when I take this in, kind of when I uh, take in this quality of giving into my heart, I, I... I I get the sense of, oh, this is one of the reasons why the Buddha began this path and practice with generosity. To encourage a practitioner like you and me to feel the beauty and the power 
in the act of offering a gift, even, even a small gift. And it's not like I then stop practicing generosity and then begin formal meditation. That's the way I always thought it was. You practice generosity and then you move on to formal meditation. Isn't that the way it's supposed to go? I was like, oh, oh, no, this is, this is much deeper than that. It's, it's rather, I come to feel and understand how meditation is an act of generosity. I'm continuing to practice generosity. Oh, this is the form it takes now. Maybe I begin by offering food and a listening ear, and then I just continue with meditation. And it's so powerful, I find, to, to feel meditation as this act of giving. Just planting those small seeds of beautiful qualities of heart and mind. Whatever they are, the ease, the diligence, the curiosity. And as I said at the beginning, I, I felt moved to share this with you because uh, my mind, it gets so tight, it complicates this whole endeavor that we're involved in. My mind can get so tightly wrapped up around me and my world. Right? This fixed, rigid sense of self. Have you noticed that? And I appreciate uh, Rebecca sharing now checking out your thoughts, you know, how many of those thoughts are circled around me, my world? And yes, I, w- I want to be clear, we're here to explore how these minds function and begin to free our own hearts and minds. But it feels so different when I situate this whole exploration as something that's vaster than me. Vaster than me and my little world, and instead something for all beings, something for the whole world. For the last few years, uh, both in the springtime and in the fall, uh, my partner and I do a longer retreat in. Uh, the, this uh, forest, the forested area around Flagstaff, Arizona. We found this really such a strikingly beautiful place that's incredibly quiet and very secluded. And it's just the two of us in this secluded place in the outdoors. We got our tent, but we're, you know, the trees shade us during the day. Practicing there amongst our, our friends, the juniper trees, the pinyon, and these great large ponderosa pond trees. And that's my intention. I just go out there just to offer, just to give, to tell you the truth, to offer my Dharma practice. And it's such a relief because it's not about what I can get from the retreat. Rather, it's, it's a chance just to plant some seeds. Moment after moment, day after day. And when the seeds sprout, they sprout. You know, I, I don't have any control over that. My, my role is just to plant the seeds. 
And when I'm out there, I'm, I'm doing the, probably a similar practice that all of you are, you know, cultivating this important balance between ease and diligence, being dedicated to the practice, passionate about it, refining these skills of the practice. And then what my partner and I do is we, we come together again. We usually spread out and we go to our trees that we feel like support our practice and then when the the sun is going down we we come to a a special place in the the forest there Uh, just as the the evening is beginning and uh, the stars are beginning to shine and sometimes the moon is there to visit us and one of the practices that we do is we chant uh, a sharing the merit practice you know sharing our dharma practice of that day and what goes along with that is we have a water offering ceremony that uh, uh, we also engage in, that we offer to the land and all the other creatures and beings, because it's the high desert. And as you know, especially in the Southwest, there's such a drought and to offer water to the trees and places to offer water to the other living beings. And within that water, the Dharma. But it is, it's, it's a relief to give my practice. Because that's one of the complications that my mind does. I don't know if you've noticed this on retreat. You know, what am I going to get out of this retreat? What am I not going to get out of this retreat? <laughs> How do I make sure I get out of something out of this retreat? You know, maybe for the three months, it's like, man, the time is ticking. <laughs> it's half over. I need to get something, Right. <laughs> And at least for my mind, there's, there's something about that mind of getting, of acquisition that's so entangled. And it feels so different just to give. Can you feel some of this, the difference of that, of getting, rather than just coming here to plant some seeds, to put a few more drops in the clay pot? One of the other things I want to point out about this is I think it's important to realize there were, that there was most likely a similar sentiment in the hearts of Buddhist practitioners in the early centuries of Buddhism. And I, I just invite you to get a feeling sense to, to remember in those early centuries, practitioners were not only engaging in practices that were possibly similar to what you and I are engaging in, but they were also memorizing the Buddha's teachings and then reciting and chanting them. It was a big part of the practice. To memorize it was an oral tradition for, the, for a number of centuries after the Buddha died. The, the, the teachings weren't written down. And maybe we can get a feeling sense, like here are these practitioners like you and I receiving really these beautiful gifts of the Dharma from previous practitioners who had engaged in the practice but also memorized, brought into their heart these teachings. And so they received this gift and then they too practice and memorize for future generations. I'm not just doing this for myself. Wow, I'm I'm intertwined with past generations and future generations. It's so vast. 
I have a duty, I have a role that carries my heart forward. It's not just my world. It's an act of generosity. Can you feel that, what that must have maybe been like to hold that in your heart, to carry something so vast? And, and I want to be really clear here, because sometimes with these stories, at least what my mind can do is like, oh, that was them. But me, oh, I'm too broken for that. Like, I'm just trying to get by here on retreats. <laughs> Food's pretty good. Just want to make it through another day. That's for those other practitioners. But I want to point out, those practitioners were just like you and me. They were struggling with being a human being. They had all kinds of challenges. As we've been pointing out, they were mammals (laughs) that probably lived troubled lives at times. And they found something that spoke to their heart. So if you have those notions like me, I, I, I want to dispel them. And, and yes, we're not here to memorize and then recite the teachings, but rather to embody what we're talking about as, as best we can. Really embody the Dharma that's been offered to us from previous generations. And then to feel how this embodiment can also be an offering for future generations to come. So again, not not intellectually understanding this, what Rebecca was pointing to last night, but to feel, to embody the Dharma. It's just planting these small seeds moment after moment for future generations. That's it. Drop by drop is the pot filled. And I want to point out that even on those mornings or afternoons or even whole days that might just feel like a train wreck. You know what I'm talking about? Those days when it feels like mindfulness has disappeared. You know those days where it's like, you try again, you like, mind comes back and then like it's gone. Try again, it's gone. It's gone. And I love this sense of just uh, drop by drop is the water pot filled. I just need a few drops. I'm just planting seeds. That's it. That's my role as the yogi. Just, just a tiny seed of self-compassion for today. Just a tiny seed of patience. And it's drop by drop, the water pot is filled. And, and quite honestly, this was a lifesaver for me. I remember you know, when I was a Zen monk, there was a little bit of a different angle during that time. Kind of this quality of uh, similar to bodhicitta that's found in Mahayana, of practicing for the benefit of all beings. And uh, Zen practice 
I don't want to give you the wrong impression here. I mean, I, Zen practice was very fruitful in many ways. And the darkest time of my life happened when I was a monk too. It was it just hit a serious wall that was so challenging. And I, I remember I was more in really survival mode of uh, just a lot of darkness. And one of the, the, the baby steps out of that was the sense of like, Okay, like, I don't know about myself, but at least I can give my practice a little bit to the world. And it was so helpful to begin to, to kind of find my way out of that dark corner. Because right, when, I, when I give this gift that is for myself and others, it, it pulls me out of my, my small, tiny world. So the question arises, sounds good, but how do these small gifts get to the rest of the world? I mean, here I am on retreats at IMS, secluded, silent. I get it in terms of giving small gifts to myself, but come on, seriously? How am I giving it to others? It's a good question. And what I like to do is to turn the question around, which is, how can I not give these gifts to others? Is it possible to kind of keep all of my Dharma practice just for me? It's like, damn it, I ain't Sharon. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh, I like what you're saying, Brian, but I'm just going to keep it just for me. Is that really possible? How would you do that? That, to me, is the real question. Because here we are, we're living on this tiny little planet where we're intimately intertwined with each other. And in such a situation, it's impossible not to offer such gifts to each other, right? This is the, some of the false notion that comes with a fixed sense of self that somehow I'm this independent being apart from the world. It's also known as delusion, ignorance. <laughs> it's just, it's not, it's not possible. It's not just about me and my life. I'm, I'm inevitably, I inevitably influence and touch the world. I am inevitably intertwined with this world and all the beings on it. And therefore, my practice here on retreat is too. So practicing for oneself and for others and for the whole world, planting the seeds for the world, those drops going in the water pot for all beings, it's impossible for it not to happen. And I, I want to give some, also some examples of this because I think it's important just to allow this to land in the heart. I want to point out that simply your willingness to be here on this retreat has already had a significant, wholesome impact on others. It's been a gift to others. Quite often before I come to teach the second part of this retreat, I usually teach part two. 
it's not uncommon that uh, uh, people around me will, uh, around this time of year, will say something like, wow, just knowing people are sitting the three months at IMS supports my practice. Truly. It's like, wow, oh, it's that time of year again. Oh, it's the three-month retreats. It it holds a a kind of gravitas in our communities. And I feel that too, even in September for part one, it's like, oh, oh, here it is again. I can can feel that. I'm moved by this intention. And for some of you who have maybe done a part of the three-month or the entire three-month and then had a year when you didn't, you might have had that same feeling. Oh yeah, here it is again. I can I can feel it. It's that time of year. And some of you here might have friends or colleagues or people, maybe from your sangha or community, that are moved by what you're doing. Right? They're moved to know that you're here for six weeks or three months. It's a positive impact. And yes, it's true. You have your other friends and family that just think you're totally insane. But <laughs> let's, let's like set that aside for now. Yeah. Okay. I guess it's not the best point I've made, but yeah, we'll just... <laughs> go over here. And, and also here at IMS, what I find too is uh, often for the staff, like, like the rhythm of the three-month retreat is so different than other retreats. It's like it, often when we're talking, it's like there's a whole kind of vibration that happens that's different. What you're doing here has such a beautiful, positive impact and then here on retreat, you know, your silence and mindfulness creates this retreat container. All of you are creating this retreat t- container together. Your patience, those drops of patience and kindness, the ways that we hold each other creates this retreat container. And I want to acknowledge something, and, and I know on retreat I forget this so quickly that it's a rare thing to be in community together like this and offer space to each other in this unique way. Like the great thing about retreat is here, here I get to be with uh, uh, all these other people and be on retreat, practice together, but I get to have my own process. I can leave kind of the interpersonal interactions to the side so I can have this different experience to go inward and yet still feel that support. This is such a gift that you give to one another. To practice together, but the willingness to set aside those interpersonal interactions. That silence. Right? And I, I want to be clear, us teachers, we, we just kind of enter in and disrupt the silence for a while. <laughs> Hopefully it supports you in some small way. <laughs> But this is true. It's all of you who are are creating this retreat. What a beautiful gift. And to to receive that from one another and to offer it. 
And then practice is so much simpler. You just you're just planting seeds. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. That's it. What a beautiful thing to give. Wouldn't that be cool if that was what's important is just you're offering your practice to each other for three months or six weeks. That that's a powerful retreat. Do you hear how how this offering, seeing the Dharma practice as offering a gift to myself and others, how it can pull us out of the small, tiny worlds that our minds can trap us in. And there's other ways that I, I feel like our practice here on retreat can extend out beyond us. And this is this is a story that happens in a different context, but I feel it relates to uh, retreat practice. It's more the story of healing that I feel uh, intersects so much with this path and intertwines with this path towards awakening. There's a woman I'd been working with for a while who had been in uh, quite a number of abusive relationships and there was a <clears throat> kind of a cycle going on. And over time, it was deeply moving because there was this whole healing process that she was going through. She really moved out of this whole dynamic. And as the healing really started to land in her heart and in her body, she was sharing with me that she began to realize she was healing a dynamic that had stretched back for generations in various forms. So, so she started to have this feeling of stopping a dynamic that went well beyond her own life. And it was a trip. She was having these dreams. And from her worldview, it might, not, it might be quite different from your worldview, but from her worldview, it was a palpable inner sense of feeling supported by her ancestors, especially the, the women of her family in, in past generations. And they were... Uh, visiting her and sharing with her how proud they were of her. And that somehow she got this feeling that they were being healed by her healing. Right? It was a kind of healing that extended beyond her separate fixed sense of self and was intertwined with a sense of family and then also extended into future generations. It's so powerful. And the reason I share this with you is is I feel something is going on in a similar way here. Offering the gift of your practice is putting an end to old habitual patterns that go beyond just our tiny little lives. And I think uh, for me, this has added, uh, kind of provides an additional way of understanding rebirth. I think there's many ways of, of holding the teaching of re- rebirth. And just to, to frame this additional way of understanding it that ties in with this story. Somebody asked the Tibetan teacher, Chogyam Trinpa, <clears throat> what gets reborn? And he said, your bad habits 
which I thought was great. And it's so cool, right, to have the end of rebirth, the end of bad habits getting reborn. It's so wonderful to put an end to hold habitual patterns that have arisen for generations probably in my family lineage. So inspiring. When I feel family lineage that courses through my heart and my body. And whether you take rebirth in this more poetic way or a literal way, I think it gives power to this passage uh, that the, from the Buddha where he, when he says, what do you think, practitioners? Which is more? He's asking them this question. Which is more? The stream of tears that you've shed as you've roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing, because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This or the water in the four great oceans? And then they answer, as we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the stream of tears that we have shed as we roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united, with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. What a wonderful thing to put an end to, whether it be intergenerationally or within our own lives. And I'd say not only family lineage but this lineage that I feel comes through society that I find myself thrown into the chance of putting an end to those bad habits as well so that they're no longer reborn and Krishnamurti speaks to this dimension says, if you don't know how your mind reacts, if your mind is not aware if it's of its own activities, you will never find out what society is. You may read books on sociology, study social sciences, but if you don't know how your own mind works, you cannot actually understand what society is. Because your mind is a part of society, it is society. Your reactions, your beliefs, you're going to the temple, the clothes you wear, the things you do and don't do, and what you think. Society is made up of all of this. It is the replica of what is going on in your own mind. So your mind is not apart from society. It is not distinct from your culture, your religion, from your various class divisions, from the ambitions and conflicts of the many. All of this is society, and you are part of it. There is no you separate from society. 
your mind is society. It's, I, I, I carry the bad habits of society. Then he continues later on, since the habit of pattern thinking has already been established in you, even if you do revolt, it is within the pattern. It's like prisoners revolting in order to have better food, more conveniences, but always remaining within the prison. So your revolt like the so-called revolution brought about by ambitious or very clever people, is always limited. That's not revolt. That's not revolution. It's merely heightened activity, a mere, more valiant struggle within the pattern. Real revolt, true revolution, is to break away from the pattern and to inquire, outside of it. For me, this is what gets me so inspired about this practice. Oh, yeah, this mind is society. And here's a chance for a a kind of true revolution of the heart. All those messed up thoughts and tendencies that you notice that can arise in the mind and heart, it's not you, it's it's the conditioning of society. And through this practice, I can begin to put an end to them. I can support them so so they don't get reborn for future generations to deal with. That's such a beautiful gift to put an end to bad habits. And I think this is really important because all this stuff that's arising in many ways has nothing to do with you. It's just inherited. It's all of the causes and conditions that have arisen that have created this. Why take it personally? I mean, have you have you noticed what a drag it is to take it all so personally? Yes, I need to take responsibility for it, but that's different than taking it personally. So hopefully you're hearing, I'm inviting you just to continue with the practices or practices that you're engaged in and and possibly adding this one small addition, which is finding a way to keep this in your heart if it resonates for you. So at the beginning of your day or at the beginning even of each sitting and walking, just putting forth this very classical aspiration, May may this practice today, or during the sitting or walking, may this go for the benefit of all beings. May this be for my own welfare, the welfare of others, and the welfare of the whole world. So just that, it could even take a few seconds. And, and then you just engage in your practice. And maybe at the end of the day, it could be, may the merit of my practice go to the benefit of all beings. May it be so. Don't worry if it was a good day or a crappy day. 
It just drops. Drop by drop. Just needs to be one drop that's filled the water pot today. Just a moment. And to share it. For me, this is part of the ritual that, that encompasses, uh, kind of is intertwined with the bowing that I do before and after a sit. Because for me, bowing gives me this feeling of opening to something that's much vaster than just little old me. And this aspiration feels intertwined with that. And also, don't worry if there's a feeling to it or not. You probably notice that sometimes you feel it and sometimes you don't. It's the repetition that begins to shape the heart and brings wisdom into the heart. So from this perspective, this perception, we're just planting these small seeds, as I said, these small gifts. That's it. Mindfulness, equanimity, some compassion in there, kindness, patience. And then they'll sprout when they sprout. Your job is just to plant the seeds day after day, not to be concerned about when they sprout. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. And maybe you taste the fruits of them, of these seeds sprouting on this retreat. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It reminds me of this passage, just these few sentences from this book, Lab Girl, from uh, uh, the author's Hope Ajaran. She shares about seeds. A seed knows how to wait. Most seeds wait for at least a year before starting to grow. A cherry seed can wait for a hundred years with no problem. When you go into a forest, you probably tend to look up at the plants that have grown so much taller than you ever could. You probably don't look down where just beneath your single footprint sits hundreds of seeds, each one alive and waiting. When you're in the forest, for every tree that you see, there are at least a hundred more trees waiting in the soil, alive and fervently wishing to be. After scientists broke open the coat of a lotus seed and coddled the embryo into growth, they kept the empty husk. When they radiocarbon dated this discarded outer shell, they discovered that their seedling had been waiting waiting for them within a peat bog in China for no less than 2,000 years. Your job as a yogi is just to plant the seeds. they'll grow when it's time for them to grow. So may the seeds that we plant together on this retreat be for the benefit of of all beings.
Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Just sit here for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.